if you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 for our scripture reading this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Scripture says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through where no one lives? I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that hold no water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hard to say that sometimes with those aggressive texts. But this is important. There are two seasons of the year on the Christian calendar that have been set apart as seasons of repentance. Season in which we are to evaluate our behavior and resolve in our hearts to turn from our transgressions. The most common and familiar of those seasons is the season of Lent, those 40 days excluding Sundays from Ash Wednesday to Easter. But we're presently in the second season of repentance on the Christian calendar. And this one doesn't get a specific name, so it often, unless you're reading the liturgical readings, you don't notice it. Officially, today is the 12th Sunday after Pentecost in a season often called Ordinary Time. Creative title, right? Ordinary Time. And Ordinary Time occurs twice every year. It comes in two parts. The part one this year was January 10th to March 1st. And we're in part two of Ordinary Time, which is the longest season in the Christian liturgical calendar. It began on June 6th, and it will continue to November 26th. Ordinary Time is that long season between the High Holy Days, right? But as we move from the end of August into the middle of September, a consistent theme emerges every year in the lectionary readings. The prophetic lectionary texts in particular become much more focused on good works and on turning away from evil during this season, so hence Jeremiah. Now the lectionary, as many are aware, goes in a three-year cycle. And this year we are in year C. And year C is the most aggressive of all the years. Year A is probably the gentlest. You like year A. It doesn't focus so much on repentance, but it focuses a lot on good works at this time of year. But as is true with Lent, this is a season in which we're called to reflect on our potential waywardness as a people. 
And this emphasis is not just part of the Christian tradition. We actually got it at this time of year from the Jewish tradition. In preparation for the commemoration of the High Holy Days on the Jewish liturgical calendar, which occur on our calendar in September or October, depending on the year, the Jewish communities observe the month of Elul. Now, the month of Elul is the 12th month, the last month of the Jewish liturgical calendar, and it's designated entirely as a month of repentance. The Jewish calendar follows the lunar calendar, the moon, so it's different. It moves around on our solar calendar. This year, the month of Elul began just a couple days ago on the evening of August 26th. Now, I went into that for two reasons. The first is maybe self-indulgent. It's the teacher in me. I like people to know where we are. But if that was all it was, I wouldn't have said anything. It's important to recognize as Christians that in our liturgical calendars, both Christianity and Judaism have preserved the realization that periods of self-evaluation and periods of self-critical assessment are essential to discipleship to the one God of all creation. In other words, part of what it means to be a faithful disciple to God is to enter deliberately into seasons in which we consider again whether we are living, thinking, and walking as we should. And this commitment is what's brought us back through the lectionary to the prophecy of Jeremiah that we've read today. And God's complaint against Israel through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2, 4 to 13, it's not overly complicated, but I'm guessing that the way God argued it probably confused the Israelites. And I'm hoping that you understand what I mean by the time we're finished this morning. In essence, the Lord has accused Israel of abandoning God and choosing to worship other gods in the Lord's place. So the Lord began by asking Israel what their reasons for this abandonment were. He put them to the question. The Lord asked, what wrong did your ancestors find in me? After asking this, the Lord detailed the ways in which Israel evidenced their abandonment, both of God and the covenant that they had made with God. According to verse 6, this abandonment began when the people stopped seeking after the Lord. They stopped asking, where is God? They stopped looking for the one true God. They stopped inquiring of the Lord. And that probably had something to do with praying. Maybe they stopped praying to him. But to call upon the name of, of the Lord, even though that includes praying, it's much more than that. The lifestyle of calling upon the Lord is more pervasive than simply prayer. God has accused ancient Israel in these verses of no longer looking to God for guidance and instruction. To say it more plainly, the Lord accused Israel of looking to other sources of wisdom for guidance and direction in life. Consequently, God accused the leaders of Israel of not knowing God. That's a high accusation. And he accused those who spent their lives studying the law of refusing to put into practice what they read and instead looking for teachings from other nations that were more appealing to them, wherever they could find them. Apparently, they loved some of what they found in the religious traditions surrounding the worship of Baal. They very much liked it, so they supplemented their worship of the Lord by incorporating some of the appealing aspects of the worship of Baal. I mean, what's wrong with that, right? Everybody has some truth. Today we call this practice syncretism. That's the academic word for it, syncretism. 
Syncretism occurs when a person or a people borrow beliefs from a variety of belief systems and try to bring them together into a new system that takes the appealing parts of all of them and gets rid of the unappealing parts of each. Oftentimes when syncretism occurs, one system will remain primary, but elements of all are present. And apparently, at least according to God, and this probably confused Israel, that was not a common practice according to God in the ancient Near East at that time. So God encouraged, in the verses we just read, the Israelites to look around them, to look at the nations around them, and see that nobody else did what Israel was doing. God suggested that Israel would find no other nation borrowing beliefs from other gods in order to worship their own. And that had to have been confusing. Because we know from history, right, that the Greek gods became Roman gods. We know that the Egyptians often worshipped Ra or Osiris or Horus, or sometimes they combined those gods into new things. So people are always borrowing. Baal was worshipped in Egypt, and he was a Canaanite god. So what is God saying to them? Well, the thing is that all those other gods never prohibited the worship of other gods. And they never prohibited the adding or subtracting from the teachings. They were gods who were open to progress. And so they didn't have to abandon their gods to incorporate new beliefs into their systems. But the God of Israel had specifically told the Israelites that they were not to add or subtract from anything he said. So in order to do what all the other nations did by drawing in all these other beliefs... They had to reject God. Now, they didn't believe that. That's why it probably confused them. But God was telling them, the moment you begin incorporating Baal beliefs into my worship, you have rejected me. I don't think they believed that. And then, in verse 13, God finally explained the core accusation he was making against Israel. The text says this, and this is the heart of this accusation. This is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Now this is a nuanced accusation, and we're going to spend the rest of our time together today considering its meaning. Now a cistern is just a reservoir used to supplement an area's water supply by collecting rainfall. We have them here, we call them towers, right? They called them cisterns, we call them water towers, right? Or collecting pools or something like that. The Lexham Bible Dictionary explains Israel's rainfall in this way. The various storage systems in the ancient Near East depended upon the rainy season, which was October through April. In Jerusalem, only 25 inches of rain fell in an average year. 25 inches of rain, we get like, 10 feet of snow right here, don't we? 20, and plus all the rain. Toward the end of summer, springs and wells were often reduced in size or entirely dry. Cisterns and open reservoirs were then sometimes the only sources of water. Second Chronicles praises King Uzziah, for instance, because he hewed many cisterns. Now, since the digging of cisterns, that's common in the ancient Near East. All the nations do it, including Israel, and all the kings did it. And since cisterns were essential to providing water for the people during the drier seasons of the year, we might be tempted just to take God's language here as metaphorical. And there is, without a doubt, a metaphoric sense to what God is saying to Israel. In some ways, the cisterns might be understood as the act of syncretism itself. 
Instead of relying on only what God had said, the Israelites, they didn't have Google, but they were doing Google searches. They were looking for things that would be more appealing. How can we spice this thing up? This is dry, dusty stuff. Man, have you read the law of Moses? Other people have fun. So we need to figure out how to bring the fun. You know, they're looking for that stuff. And they cobbled together a system of beliefs from many different sources that created a set of religious obligations that were much more appealing to them. In this way, they had dug their own cisterns, which they thought could nourish them spiritually during dry seasons without consequence. And God has diagnosed that project as cracked, as ultimately failed. In other words, religious beliefs cobbled together in this way, they will not hold any water. The people will die of thirst eventually. God's teachings, on the other hand, have been presented as founts of living water. And living water is another way of speaking of fresh water. Water that was running from springs or through streams or even rainwater if it was falling is fresh living water. Jesus used this same metaphor when speaking with a woman from the region of Samaria in John chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. This is how the gospel writer preserved it. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. Here she's confused the metaphor for a real well somewhere. Give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Now perhaps, before we move on, we should pause here to recognize that any system of beliefs, at least according to the scriptures, that adds to or subtracts from what God has revealed to us through God's prophets and apostles as embodied and interpreted by Jesus will not lead to eternal life. However much good it may do on earth, it will do no good in eternity. According to God, through Jeremiah, any cobbled together sets of beliefs that draw from multiple religious sources is a self-dug, cracked cistern. It will hold no water. However, was God's accusation simply metaphorical? I think it was more than that. What I'm driving at is that the actual digging of cisterns in the actual world to catch Actual rainwater does raise questions with respect to Israel's trust in God. To ask the question differently, if Israel had actually believed the word of God, would they have dug fewer cisterns? Now, I'm not suggesting that digging cisterns was wrong. The covenant of Sinai never prohibited them from doing that, and it even speaks about cisterns quite neutrally. Having admitted that, it's still to be observed that digging cisterns was meant to offset the possibility of running short on water during dry seasons. And God had made promises to the Israelites with respect to drinking water. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 12 through 14, we find the following promise of God to Israel. 
He says, if they're obedient to the law, the Lord will open for you his rich storehouse, the heavens, to give the rain of your land in its season and to bless all your undertakings. You will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be only at the top and not at the bottom. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today by diligently observing them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I'm commanding you today, either to the right or to the left, in our context, right, that gets at both the political parties, right? Either to the right or to the left, following other gods to serve them. Of course, God never told Israel they would not require cisterns. He never said that. But he did promise them that their reigns would be regular and that they would be predictable if they remained faithful to the covenant that God made with them. Now, the, the cisterns he's talking about here had been hastily dug. How do I know? Because they were cracked and the work was faulty. Hastily digging cisterns that were faulty and cracked most likely indicates rushed work. And rushed work is usually done in response to a crisis. This could have been done in response to a surplus of rain, of which they wished to take advantage, or it could have been done in response to a series of years in which there were not adequate rains to sustain them during the dry season. In any case, quick and shoddy work most likely indicates a rushed attempt to offset future calamity. Jesus spoke about that same kind of behavior, but rather than using the language of cisterns, he used the language of barns. This is in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. He might as well have said, I've got too much rain, I will dig cisterns, right? And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. To put the matter bluntly, throughout recorded history, humanity has been desperately trying not to need God in order to survive on this planet. In many ways, our desperate hunger to improve our technology and our understanding of the world is driven by a thirst for security without faith. In the hasty digging of additional cisterns, Israel has demonstrated this same thirst as well. And it's hard to question that instinct. I mean, after all, this world is a terribly dangerous place. And it's fickle. And many people who don't plan ahead pay the price for not doing so. Who could blame Israel for digging more cisterns? They got 25 inches of rain a year. Who could blame them? Who could blame us for seeking cures for our diseases, better protection from nature's elements, or a better future for humankind on Earth or on Mars? I mean, think of life without these protections. We'd be returning to the vulnerability of this fickle and indifferent world. Why would anybody want that? And of course, no one would. But perhaps what we forget 
is that the devastating peril of the world from which we are seeking to protect ourselves and our families was not this way from the beginning. Now, I'm not saying that when God first created the world, it was entirely safe. It wasn't. I mean, there was a tree that could end all life in the middle of a garden, and God left them alone with a serpent who was trying to get them to eat from it. I mean, that's not exactly safe, I don't think. Nonetheless, in the beginning, Scripture tells us that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. It was God who planted a garden in which God intended humans to live. It was God who created humanity out of the dust of the earth, and God walked with the first humans regularly in the garden that God had planted. The food that our first ancestors ate was not planted by them or tended by them. God planted the garden, God grew the trees, and God produced the fruit. I'm reminding us that in the beginning, humans were created to care for creation. And God had covenanted to care for us. What changed? We changed. Rather than receiving our instruction from God, our ancestors wanted to decide for themselves what they learned, when they learned it, and how they applied it. Scripture summarizes this decision in the story of humanity eating from the tree of knowledge. And because we rejected God as our teacher and educator, God banished us from the Garden of Eden, a place in which God had prepared to care for us. The scripture tells us that God banished the first humans east of the Garden of Eden. And life east of Eden has proven to be much harder to manage than our first parents assumed. They thought, and the serpent helped them think this, that all they needed was knowledge to make their way in the world and to make their way safe. They thought it would make them like gods. They did not think they needed God. They didn't need God's knowledge. They didn't need God's instruction. They did not need God's watch care. And so, as the scripture tells us, those humans who sought to live furthest from God had to, at the same time, develop their technology at a rapid pace. This group of people were called the line of Cain in Genesis. Cain and Abel are the first two narrated children of Adam and Eve. And Genesis tells us that Cain murdered his brother out of envy. And because he did that, God sent him deeper into exile, not just east of Eden, but even further from his family. We find the brief record of his family history in Genesis 4, 17 to 26. It was Cain's descendants who were the first to build cities. They were the first to develop animal husbandry. They were the ones who invented musical instruments, and it was they who became the first metal workers on earth. These technological advancements were more necessary for the line of Cain than they were for the line of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, because Cain was living in greater separation from God. This principle has remained true throughout scriptural history. You'll find it everywhere. The closer a people live to God, the less money and technological sophistication they require for survival. The further a people wander from God, the more they have to depend on their knowledge and strength to make their way in the world. In fact, one might say biblically that necessity is not the mother of invention, but wandering from God. And it works. It works. It's practical. It works to a degree. By knowledge, we humans have been able to make the world safer for ourselves. There's plenty of contemporary evidence to demonstrate this claim. But as Jeremiah has reminded us, however safe the world may be through knowledge, it will never be as safe as a world in right relationship with God. 
Never. Now, none of this is to say that increase in knowledge and technology and technology is wrong. It's not sinful. All knowledge is God's knowledge. And the covenant of Sinai itself included instructions about health and about hygiene, about medicine, about how to build things, and so on. The point is not that lower levels of technology indicate greater levels of faith. I, I all due respect to the Amish. That's not what it's about. But what is rarely discussed is that knowledge and technology are never sufficient. And any of you who have lost anyone to cancer know that that's true. The covenant of Sinai, as full of human responsibility as it was, also included elements that would never have worked without God's active involvement. For instance, in the case that a dispute could not be adjudicated by testimony and evidence alone, a difficult court case that they couldn't decide the truth of, the covenant of Sinai provided a way to inquire directly of God to receive justice. And there are a number of areas in the law in which God agreed to participate directly in response to situations impossible for humans to manage alone. But as with the digging of cisterns, the more the people of Israel disregarded God's teachings, the more desperate their faith in knowledge and technology had to become. Why? Because when a person refuses to follow God's lead, God does, in fact, allow them to wander from him. Paul said as much in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, when he wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. To come to God for living water, whether we're receiving that invitation through Jeremiah or in the person of Jesus with the woman from Samaria at the well, is to come to God for instruction, to come to God for guidance, and to receive knowledge at God's pace and in God's time. For the knowledge of creation, and if you're a teacher, you'll understand the language I'm about to use. For the knowledge of creation to be properly understood and applied, humanity requires a graded curriculum. This is what our ancestors rejected in Eden. But history's proven that decision foolish. We as a people have gained knowledge routinely long before we were ready for it. History is full of examples of discoveries and inventions that led to catastrophic results before we even realized what we had done. One example of this relates to the use and discovery of x-ray technology. Numbers of people de developed cancer and a good number died before the true risks of that technology were properly understood. I've had so many CAT scans, I glow in the dark if you turn off the lights. It's convenient for my wife if she needs to get up at night. I'm sure you can think of other examples as well. In fact, even today, technological breakthroughs may yet prove to have disastrous future results. We just can't know. That's history says it will happen. From x-rays to nuclear fission, to the burning of fossil fuels, to the decrease of biodiversity and farming practices, humans have proven throughout history to be much quicker at invention and innovation than we are at acquiring wisdom. The world is dangerous east of Eden, and so we build houses, we invent locks, we pay for law enforcement, we agree to be taxed by governments, we go to war, and we invent in the search 
and we invest in the search for new and better medicines and technologies. And all of that is necessary, but it's also a consequence of our separation from God. For those of us who wish to chart another course, we have to repent. And that's what Jeremiah was calling Israel to. We must turn from our faith in knowledge and return to faith in God. Now, that does not exclude study, it doesn't exclude science, it doesn't exclude medicine or technological advances, but it does exclude faith in these things to save us. And it does exclude the belief that those endeavors will prove sufficient. The people of Israel worshipped Baal and hastily dug cisterns, but they never realized that their need for cisterns was increasing the more they worshipped Baal. God has not created the world entirely safe. We all live east of Eden. There are consequences to living in this exile from which God will not fully protect us. This is why the health and wealth gospel falls flat. Jesus did not promise us complete safety on this side of eternity. He prepared us to suffer. But for those who truly place their faith in God, Jesus did promise daily bread, sufficient clothing, and that God would be with them. Perhaps today, we might ask ourselves, how many cisterns have I dug? Is my fear of the future, the fear of financial collapse, the fear of disease, the fear of suffering, even the fear of death, is that in any way connected to my feeling of distance from God? Is there sin or rebellion in my life that may be feeding that distance and my experience of it? If the answer is yes, then we are invited to repent. We have to read a lot, through a lot more warnings in Jeremiah, which we won't do this morning, about life lived in rebellion against God before we come to God's invitation to return. But if we endure God's judgment and his words of warning, we'll find his grace offered to us in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, first to Israel, and then through them and through Jesus to us. And it's for those who have wandered from God's way. Return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. If we wish to be free from fear, we must follow Jesus. May it be so.